So today what I was asked to speak about was about Hanukkah. So I'm going to say something about Hanukkah in the first minute. I'm going to say something about Hanukkah in the last minute. And uh, a lot of the time in between, the beginning and the end, will not necessarily be about Hanukkah. So I hope that that doesn't trouble anyone that much. So there's a lot to speak about in terms of Hanukkah, but I, I want to focus on one primary thing, I'm going to say a couple of other things in, uh, in passing. One, which is not the primary point, but it's the important point, and that is that Hanukkah is the only holiday that we have where the events, the historical events that took place, took place in the land of Israel. Pesach, Sukkot, Shavuot, Purim, which means all the holidays that, that, we're, that we practice, all of them are events outside the land of Israel. And it could be that being in the land of Israel would give us a certain sense of, uh, of safety, a certain sense of, uh, of being protected because we have our land instead of the vulnerable feeling, which is being in Chutzlaretz. So nonetheless, that, that's really a part of the story. The part of the story is that nonetheless we were quite vulnerable. So that, that's point number one. But the, the larger point is partially to answer the famous question, as to why does the Gemara speak so little about Hanukkah specifically, um, or one can say, why does the Gemara speak so little about Hanukkah generally, and why specifically when it comes to the war, it comes to the battle, there is almost nothing. So again, if you just think for a moment, an unfair comparison between Purim and between Hanukkah and Purim, we have a book which is part of the canon, which is part of Tanakh, Gilat Esther, and over here there's no book, which is obvious because the story takes place after the time that Anshe Knesset Abdullah already closed the canon. But on the other hand, there's not even a Masechta. I mean, Yudha Nasi could have made a Masechta, could have made a Gemara about Hanukkah, but he chose not to. So that itself is interesting, and there is a lot of literature about that. Nonetheless, Hanukkah sneaks into a couple of different Mishnayot, most of the time just because of the date, because we need the date for some other law, not about Hanukkah. There's one Mishnah which is then quoted in the Gemara that speaks of Hanukkah. Just a moment about the Gemara. The Gemara is the Gemara in Shabbos, Shabbat. There it's Beperek Bamed Badlikin, where we read Friday nights, at least most of us, unless we're about to speak and we have to think about what we're going to say. But uh, but um, there, while talking about which oil and which wicks are used for the Shabbat candles, then in passing, it's, oh, oh what about Hanukkah? Are these the same rules, or the different rules? And that's where we have the major discussion about Hanukkah. And the war there is mentioned in passing, that one, the Maccabeans, that when the Hashmaim, when they were victorious, then they went and they found this one flask of, uh, of oil. So the, the, the battle is mentioned but very quickly, and uh, along the way there is this Mishnah that I cited before, Mishnah Babakama is cited, which is actually very interesting because it, it indicates a number of things. It, it, the law which is stated there is that if I'm traveling in a public thoroughfare and somebody lights fire in the street and I knock it over, so then the person who left it there has responsibility for the damages. On the other hand, if it's Hanukkah and somebody lit their candle their fire outside in the street, then the person traveling by has a responsibility, which means that Hanukkah is considered to be something which is well-known, well enough known that the person who's driving by should say, have in their mind, well, it's Hanukkah now, and these uh, and people will have candles about it, and I have to be more careful as I'm traveling. So therefore, from that, like one little, you know, half of a Mishnah, 
you understand that Hanukkah was something which was well known and practiced to the point that people were lighting, people were lighting outside. So therefore, it really does go back to this question. So if Hanukkah is known, it's well known. So why, why is it not taught more? So I'm, I'm going to leave that question and I want to say one thing which maybe answers it or maybe not. One of the questions we need to ask ourselves about Hanukkah is there's really two issues. One is the military victory and the other one is the miracle of lights. As far as the miracle, if you were then to divide them and say, what if you only had one without the other? Would we still be celebrating Hanukkah today? So if you did not, if you only had the miracle of lights, but there was no military victory, so then there would be no reason to celebrate because we would not necessarily have survived, which means the, the, the miracle of the lights is, actually, maybe I'll come back to this at the end, it's an unnecessary miracle. It doesn't do anything. On, obviously, I'm wrong when I say that, but that's, you know, at first, at face value, at first glance, what does it do for us? On the other hand, the military victory is what's really s- significant. So I'll, I'll say it again. If we only had one without the other, certainly we would have had to cho- choose the military victory because that's we won and that's how we survived. But that would not necessarily have been celebrated because of a very simple issue that, to a certain extent, the battle that took place, certainly the initial battles that took place, were not just, the, as sometimes we teach our children, the Jews against the Greeks. It was the Jews against the Hellenized Jews. It was Jews against Jews. It was a civil war. It was, it was one where certainly in, in cases there was bro- brother fighting brother and cousin fighting cousin, and therefore a, a civil war is not one that you celebrate the victory. You celebrate when there is an end of the battle. And therefore, when, when we think about Hanukkah, one of the elements which the rabbis had to deal with was this very sad part of its history. And that is this element where there is a civil war, and that leads you with a big question mark. Okay, so now what, what do we do? So one can even then suspect, had there not been the miracle of the lights, then perhaps this whole thing would have perhaps been forgotten or not even celebrated. Or maybe it would have been, and I'll just add another concept right now, there is something which is called Megillah Ta'anit. It's one of the earliest collections of Torah Shabal Peh. It is Breitot, which talks about holidays that took place during the Second Temple period, days that were celebrated, days which, which, which were not celebrated. Megillah Ta'anit, the, the, the scroll of fasts, include days that you are obligated to fast because of events that took place, and includes days that you're not allowed to fast. The only two dates, Megillah Ta'anit, that we still take seriously today, sorry for the word seriously, is Purim and Hanukkah. Those, those are the only ones that have survived. The rest of them... You know, why would we celebrate the dedication of a new, let's say, wall outside the Beit HaMikdash when that wall is gone? There's nothing to celebrate anymore. So therefore, Megillah Ta'anit becomes completely forgotten. But what I want to use now to frame, to go forward, is this element of brothers fighting, because that's exactly where we are in terms of the Parsha, in terms of the, of the Yosef and his brother's stories, where we have also something which has uh, taken place. What is true, and again, I, def, I don't want to go into this because I want to come back to the brothers fighting, but what is true is that Hanukkah finds itself at the time of year, which is a magnet for anti-Hanukkah celebration, which means the later and perhaps example which resonates with us, with us more would be Hanukkah coming around Christmas time 
and therefore at the same time that in some of the churches they're talking about how terrible the Jews are and so on, then we're celebrating publicly, that would have been really a magnet for anti-Jewish uh, sentiment and sometimes behavior. On the other hand, we're told, Rashi points out, when we're told that you're allowed to light inside because of times of danger, he says that the Persians also had a holiday at this time. The Gemara itself in Avodah Zarah, page 8, which of course is quite appropriate, Tafchet, in Avodah Zarah, 8 in terms of Hanukkah, there it also speaks about an eight-day holiday which was celebrated at the time of the solstice, whereby when the days would get shorter and shorter and shorter, and then they would start getting longer again, that would be a time of a pagan holiday which had to do with lights. So therefore, what's with, and the Gemara traces of this all the, way, the celebration all the way back to Adam HaRishon. So th- there's a lot to talk about in terms of the danger. So therefore, if, there, if, if there's an idolatry dealing with the celebration of light, and you have the Persians celebrating this, and the Jews are lighting their candles at this particular time, as you realize that things become a lot more complicated. So we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. There's, there's, as I said, obviously a lot more to say. But I want to come back to our issue in terms of our uh, of brothers that are fighting, and that really is the background. So l- let's catch us up to exactly where we are in Parsha Miketz, and that is that Yosef goes through this really miraculous change of fate from being a, a prisoner in a prison to becoming, you know, he wakes up that morning and he has his prison clothes on and he's unshaven and unkept. And uh, later on in that day, he finds himself the second most powerful man in, in, in the empire, maybe in the world at that particular point, because that really was a significant empire. And probably many people reading this would be surprised. The one person who most likely was not surprised was Yosef, because Yosef always knew that he was destined for greatness. So therefore, for Yosef, he probably knew that the hand of God was going to guide him one way or the other to this. How details, all that's interesting, but that's not necessarily the the issue. But what does happen when he stands in front of Paro and he sells Paro on a plan, and, and, and we've discussed this before, I'm just going to say this briefly, quickly, to understand really what Yosef did and the, and the brilliance of Yosef. Yosef, in terms of Paro, could have had an Again, the the diagnosis in terms of what's going to take place clear. It's going to be there's going to be seven good years, there's going to be seven bad years. But what's the prognosis? Which means now, okay, now now how do we play that? Someone else would have told Paro, you you collect the food, which by the way is long term thinking. The investors that do well, you'll ask your son about this, the investors that do well are the ones who don't respond to everything that happens. It's long-term planning, long-term thinking. If you're already going to put your money into something, you, you, you play it out. The people that respond quickly, then as soon as it goes down, then they sell, they always lose money. They're, they're never going to make money on things. But Yosef is this wonderful long-term thinker. Okay, we're going to save. We're going to save and save and save and save until the value will be the highest. But now... Again, continue the prognosis. Now, what do you do? The, the pagan response to this would have been, all the other countries around us will be without food, they're going to starve, and then we declare war on them, and then we take over, then we take over all these other countries, which means the pagan response would have and should have been, let's now go and conquer the... Now let's come, become even a more significant empire. And what Yosef tells Paro is that we can have a bloodless coup, as it were, we could, what does he say to him? It's the most Jewish response in the world. He goes, we're going retail. We're going to start selling this. 
We're going to be making lots and lots of money. You're going to get all the money from all those other countries, and you're not going to have to tax them. You're not going to need a tax collector. You're not going to need soldiers. You're not going to have to go and conquer it. Without spilling a a drop of blood, you are going to conquer all the money from all the countries around you. Do do you realize how brilliant this is, what, what, what Yosef did? What, Yo- what Yosef does is he, he, um, he sells this to Paro. You're, you're going to become a very wealthy man. You should be spending all your time right now trying to figure out what you're going to do with your money. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's essentially the conversation. And that, that's what Paro understands. And Paro is shocked because it's such an unpagan thing to do. Rabbi Soloveitchik, he, he observed that when Yaakov finds out that Paro was selling food and taking care of his neighbors... He, he, he's shocked. He said, who in the world taught the Abraham principles of kindness and love and, and, and caring to, to, to Paro? Which means, how did the Abraham values become a national mission for Egypt? And little did Yaakov know that it was his protege, that it was his closest son, that it was his student. It was his lessons. But now you realize the greatness of Yosef. Avram's got a little tent business going on. A guy straggles in from the desert. Okay, I'll give you some food. Yosef turns this into the values of an entire country, which is really something when you, when you now begin to think about what Yosef is. But Yosef, and this part I want to get to today, Yosef has multiple identities and multiple relationships. Yosef, of course, for Egypt is the mysterious Tzafnat Paneach, Michael's going to tell me again afterwards exactly what that means That in, in Egyptian, that he is Tzofnat Paneach, he's mysterious, they don't know that much about him and his background and somehow, but he, again, he's the, he's the golden child. He's the guy who comes in with this plan and it works. So and that's the most important part. And he has his position of power for then a mere 80 years or so. He, he's, again, just realize Yosef, and uh, then you're going to tell me that he's my favorite character. Of course he's my favorite character. I mean, look, look, look at him. But on the other hand, Yosef knows something else. 30 years old, he stands in front of Paro, woke up that morning in prison, and is now in charge of Egypt, and he knows sooner rather than later his brothers are coming. And he's got plenty of time to prepare. He's got plenty of time to think about what he's going to say. He's got plenty of time... If he was a rabbi preparing a drush, and not me, by the way, because I, I don't prepare like this, then he could stand in front of the mirror and he can uh, practice his, uh, his lines and he can practice uh, exactly what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. But Yosef has, ultimately, we find out, approximately nine years because at the end of the episode, he tells his brothers that there, there was two bad years, will be another five bad years, which, by the way, is sharing a state secret. There's going to be another five years. So now you know that Yosef has had approximately, um, again, seven, eight, nine years for this moment when he's going to meet his brothers, and now it happens. And Yaakov hears that in Egypt that there is, there's food. And uh, he questions his sons, you know, what are we waiting for? Let's go. I mean, why are you looking all around? You don't go. Let's go. But you know, You know, let's choose life, go down, find food, bring it back. And the ten sons of Yosef go down. He didn't send Binyamin together with the, the other ten. And that, that may say something, it may not say something. It may say he doesn't trust them. It may be that, uh, you know, last time 
this didn't work out well. Or he could be saying, I don't want Benjamin away from me. Uh, this, he's not as young as you think he is. He was. He, there's a ten year. There's a ten year difference between the two. He is at this point, as far as we know, therefore around 29, and he has 12 kids. We're yeah. We're, 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 we're told that a little bit later, which is very funny because in the whole narrative, Yehuda next week will keep on referring to him as young and the child and the kid, and he's not talking about him. He's talking about someone else who was long. Who has disappeared long ago? Right, doesn't go. Maybe you know, tragedy will strike. Now I don't know when it says they come among the others. Does that mean that the ten of them are together among all the others, or does that mean that they're divided? You know, because the betoch can go different ways. Because there was a famine. Yosef is in charge. Again, Paro's busy. He's got his harems to run. He's got his money to spend. He can't be involved with running the business. Yosef is the great provider, which essentially means that not only does Yosef's first dream come true, that they're about to bow down to him for food, the entire Middle East is bowing down to Yosef for food, which means not only does Yosef's dream come true, it comes true beyond what the brothers even imagined when they argue with him that this can't be. And they bow down to him, and I'm going to say it again, just like everybody else does for food. And Yosef sees his brothers, and he recognizes them. He makes himself like a stranger to them. And he speaks to them with harshness. So again, I'm going to pause here and say, I don't believe that this is a visceral response that suddenly out of nowhere his brothers have shown up. Yosef has known this for a very long time. He knew this day would come. He knew this moment would come. And he's been looking out for them. And now they come. And, he's, and he makes himself into a stranger. He does not want them to recognize them. He does not reveal who he is. And then he speaks harshly to them. And then he puts pressure on them. He said, where have you come from? And this could be, possibly, just to completely verify. They said, we come from the land of Klan to buy food. Now, I've pointed out in the past that they're clearly under pressure because they're speaking too much. They should have lawyered up immediately, and the lawyer would have said, don't speak. And when they do speak, just answer what you were asked. They were asked, where are you from? And the answer is, we're from the land of Canaan. When they say, where are you from? Well, land of Canaan to buy food. Well, what else would you be here for? Which means, why are you telling me to buy food? You're on a food line. Which means, speaking too much, which they will continually do throughout the narrative, they will speak too much, they will say the wrong things, they will, Yehuda's speech next week will be almost a comedy on how many things that he says which are not accurate because part of the problem of lying is you have to keep in mind who you've told which things to and Yehuda has a very hard time with this. And... Vayaker Yosef... Okay, one second. Vayaker Yosef etachav and Yosef recognizes brothers. Now that, the commentaries all point out, that sounds superfluous. We were already told before that he recognizes them and he spoke difficultly. So some say that before he saw that it was his brothers and now he recognizes each and every one of them. Ah, that's Ruvain, that's Shimon, oh, look at Levi, and, uh, and so on. And before he, he saw it was his brothers and now he sees each of his brothers. 
Vehem lo hikiru, but they did not recognize him. Vayiskor Yosef atachalamot ashachalam lahem, and he remembers the dreams, and the word lahem is interesting, he remembers the dreams which he dreamed for them. Vayomu le muraglimatem, and he accuses them of being spies. Lerotet ervat You've come to see, and there's two ways the commentaries explain ervat ta'aretz. One is the weakness of the land in terms of capturing it, and the other is that you've come to the seedy ports of town and you've been hanging out in the red light district. So there are two different ways of reading ervat ta'aretz over here. You've, literally, you've come to the nakedness of the, of the land. If it's the first one, you're your spies, then it sounds like Yosef is saying, going back to what I said before, they talk too much. They said, oh, we're here for food. What else would you be here? You must really be spies because regular people don't speak like you do. And on the other hand, if he's saying that you're searching in the, in the certain areas of the city, maybe what Yosef is saying, and this is something which I've developed previously and not for today, maybe he's getting into their heads what they think Yosef is or was, and Yosef, the only thing he had going for him was good-looking, so maybe Yosef's working in the sex trade someplace, and he's saying, well, maybe you're looking for something. And later on, I think he actually says it to them, but again, we're going to leave that. The The larger question which I want to deal with is what exactly is Yosef looking for? What is Yosef trying to do? Which means that when his brothers arrive, he knows they're going to arrive, then what, what's the plan at this point? So what I want to start with is Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, in source number two. He says that he, he starts accusing them of something in order to show them that anybody can be wrong in their assumptions, that sometimes one plus one isn't two, sometimes one plus one is 11. And he wants to show them that they misjudged him based on what looked at the evi- like the evidence, and therefore he's using the evidence to misjudge them and say, see how this feels when somebody will accuse you of something, being something that you're not and judging you for being something that you're not. And therefore he's claiming, from this point even, he's putting them through a process whereby they can begin to identify with Yosef and what he had gone through. He says, certainly the brothers, they, they were judicious in how they treated Yosef. Because there's no Torah yet, so they don't have rules, they use their logic. Now consider for yourself. When you have a family that lives together in peace and harmony, and then one comes along and he makes tension between the father and the sons. And they judged him initially for death and later on for only servitude. He wanted to prove to them he wanted to show them, look, an intelligent person can use his logic and make a mistake when he's putting together all the facts. Even though they themselves won't even know like what is going on in terms of what is taking place in terms of the mistake, which is fascinating what he's saying over here. Because, he, and, and what I especially love, and the reason I brought this in, because it goes back to the theme that I want to try to get to, and that is, you know, when brothers fight. And over here, 
he's actually saying that sometimes in families, and this is such an important point, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying it stronger than he's saying it, sometimes in families, fights take place, and he asks the, the two sides 10 years later, 20 years later, what, what was the fight about? And, and they don't even know anymore. It's that the fight itself takes a life of itself, and they don't even know how it started. They don't even know exactly what it was. What was the real or imagined thing which had taken place? And the idea or the concept of fighting to f- keep family together is something which I think needs to be stressed over here because Yosef is trying to show them, just take a look what happened over here. An intelligent guy is watching, listening to what you had to say, and he decided that you guys are spies. What are you going to do now? And essentially what Vyakov is saying, yeah, that's exactly what they did to him, and that's why he's doing it. Now, of course, the larger question is, is he doing this as vengeance, or is he doing this for some kind of higher and more elevated ideal? Which means that's really going to be the question which is going to be going together with us. Now, the one who, to a certain extent, articulates the question, and this is a very famous question, and I've dealt with this before, but I I want to go a little bit deeper into it today than I have in the past, and that is the Ramban. The Ramban right here, on this point, that Yosef remembers the dreams that he dreamed for them, says as follows, Yosef always knew, I hear the word or always, Yosef knew, Yosef knows, the dreams will come true. Because they just bow down to him. That's Rashi's approach. The Ramban says, I think it's the other way around. That the dream did not, one dream did not come true yet. And even you can claim the dream that did come true did not come true completely. Because Yosef knew the interpretation of dreams. The first dream was all of his brothers bowing down. And they were missing one brother. The second time, it's also the sun of the moon. And the Ramban says something which has horrified later commentaries, and that is that what is motivating Yosef the dreams must come true. And therefore, a dream which has come true only 90%, don't bother me with the exact percentage, but we're missing one brother, and 10 out of 11, I'm sure somebody there listening is going to at some point write to me what the exact percentage is, but you know I don't care. But it's not complete. And therefore, we need Binyamin in order to make it complete. Which means what stops Yosef at this moment from revealing himself. And as I said, he's had nine years or so to think about this, or maybe he's had a lot longer. Maybe, again, he should be around 39 now. Maybe he's had 22 years, ever since he was 17 years old and he left, or not of choice, but he left his father's home. And and then, therefore, tell them, go run and tell, tell... my father, that I'm okay, and send all the chariots like he did subsequently. His father certainly would have come. 
And after the first dream come true, then Yosef wanted the second one too. And then the Ramban throws something out. But we're going to get a little bit into the history of what he throws out. Had this not been the case, Yosef would have been guilty of a terrible sin. To cause his father this pain. And cause his father all these years of mourning. For him, but also subsequently for Shimon. And even if he wanted his little pound of flesh, he wanted a little bit of vengeance against his brothers. Wouldn't he have felt bad, have compassion for his father's whitening hair, meaning the pain of his father? Everything Yosef did, he did because of the of the dreams to come true, which he knew would certainly come true. So the Ramban over here is actually, uh, you know, again, somewhat shocking. He brings up this point that why doesn't he just end the story right now? Because he says the dreams must come true. And then a little later, he, he goes down, and, and he does express that Yosef is not exactly sure how the other brothers relate to Binyamin, and that's something that, that he wants to look into. But moving on, he writes, look where it's bolded, the second paragraph there, the third line in, towards the end of the line, Everything Yosef did was with his wisdom and interpretation of dreams. I just want to say parenthetically, for the Ramban, the dreams of prophecy, which should not be a terrible shock because God has appeared in all kinds of dreams so far in Sefer Bereshit. Yaakov, his father, had dreams and uh, those were seen as prophecy. So Yosef apparently sees his dreams as prophecy and therefore the, the prophecies must come true. He, continu- he continues and he says, Ki yesh because otherwise you would have a very severe question. All those days that Yosef was in charge, that he was in charge of Potiphar's house, how did he never send a letter to his father to inform him and to comfort him? Because Egypt is around the six-day the six travel. And even if it was an entire year's worth of travel, it would have been worthwhile. And for Yaakov, this would have been something which was precious to redeem Yosef, and he wouldn't have done this with a great deal of money if he would have known where he was. But Yosef knew, he knew that the way that things work, they never would have bowed down to him in their land. And he was hoping that when they see Yosef's great success, certainly once Yosef heard Paro's dreams, and he knew now, that everyone's going to come, they're all going to bow down to him. And again, the, the Ramban is fascinating, but I, I do want to point something out. One of the most interesting elements is when he raises this question about why Yosef never contacted his father. And this is something which uh, people love to talk about. Um, I've spoken about it. 
in, in our lifetimes, Rabbi Yol Ben-Nun wrote about this, and that has become incredibly popular. Deep inside, I don't believe there's a question. Deep inside, I think that those who've raised this question, till modern times, have raised the question because they had something else they wanted to say. Which means they didn't raise the question because the question really bothered them. They raised the question because they had an answer they wanted to say. For, for the Ramban over here, he brings this point you know, as a side point. He doesn't start off by saying, wow, I have a question over here. How is that, Yaakov, that Yosef never contacted Yaakov? That's not what bothers him. Rather, he utilizes this as evidence. Oh, look, look to the extent that Yosef believes that his dreams have to come true. Which means for the, Ram, for the Ramban, it's, he sort of says this in passing. But what I want you to note Today, I'm going to show you. I'm actually going to exaggerate this. I'm going to show you how many people before the Ramban asked this question. He was not the first, he's not the second, he's not the third. And it actually entered into a whole school of thought, as we'll uh, see in a second. Although, I, I have another question. I don't want anybody to answer me, but I have another question. At this particular point in time in history, do they actually have an alphabet, and were they writing letters, and was it possible to send letters at this point? I'm, I, I, don't, I don't want the answer to that question. My, uh, my, my suspicion is, is that the question is not as good as uh, some people may think it is. I mean, again, we can look at it today and say, hold it, why, why did Yosef not add his father, invite him to his Instagram account so he can see pictures of him on a daily basis and see what's going on, right? Okay, okay the, you know, to, to some of my students, you know, at some point, that's going to become a really good question. Wow. I never thought of that. Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think some of you who are very old and remember a world before all of this will know, well, that's not really a very good question. So I'm going to ask the same thing. Was it really possible for Yosef to have written a letter and to send it? And, and I'm not convinced it was. And let's just say, then we just shift it a little bit and say, okay, so he could have sent a messenger. He could have sent somebody. So just realize how that becomes now more complicated. Because... What I want you to keep in mind, and that's what I said already once today, I'm going to say it again. Yosef is not just an individual. Yosef also has a very important position. Yosef is a person. Yosef is a son. Yosef is a brother. Yosef has his job. And all of this makes things complicated. And we're going to see a little bit more as we move on. But I'm going to say it again. The Ramban brought this not because he thought it was a great question. The Ramban brought it because he had a great answer. And his great answer is, look what motivates Yosef, and that's for the dreams to come true. The Datsakeni Mibaliatosvot. Now, I'm not even accusing him necessarily of being the first person. We may, we may have insight who the first person is, but give me a couple seconds. But we've just now... Uh, have taken it to a certain school, because you know that Tosfot is not an individual, Tosfot is a school. So the Dat Zikenimi Balia Tosfot brings out. Now, I have to explain what he just now did. First of all, the Ramban said it's six days. He said four or five days. I have no idea. If you want, we could rent some camels out and we can uh, do a, a class project. We can see how long it takes to get to Egypt. Of course, part of the problem will be knowing which part of Egypt is considered to be Egypt and where exactly the boundaries, which are also not such a simple point. So it's like saying, where, where does your family come from? So it depends which century. They moved a lot. No, the borders moved a lot. So like where they lived, I mean, or the old joke of somebody who never moved, but he lived in like in six different countries. 
Okay, so ba- ba- back to what the Baliatosa just did. They actually just now defended Chazal. Because th- there is a teaching of Chazal, which I did not bother to bring, that says that there was a conspiracy by the sale of Yosef, and they all swore that they were never going to reveal it, including God, which itself is fascinating, and including Yosef. We're all in on this together. Like, it's like saying, let's vote majority wins, and therefore we're all declaring that nobody... Now, I mean, some of the comment, later commentaries hold it. You, you can tell me Yosef's got a gun to his head and his vow means anything. It, it's meaningless in terms of halacha. God has to listen to them. But what it's trying to do is, it's really the core of saying something that you saw in Rabbi Yaakov before, and I actually spoke about it at length last year, and that is that the brothers feeling they're justified for what they did, and those actually later on who try to back that up, yeah, the brothers are, are justified. But that's really what's taking place, is saying is that there was a conspiracy, and everybody agreed, even Yosef agreed, even God agreed. So what they're really doing in this teaching is trying to show you to what extent that everybody agreed not to tell Yaakov about this, but it's not, again, it's not that he had a question, oh my God, why does Yosef never contact his father? It's the opposite. It becomes evidence to support a thesis which they want to be supported. If you look in source number five, one second, I don't want to move on yet. I, I want to read a little bit more in four, because again, I, I spoke about Yosef having multiple identities. Yosef, didn't, Yosef felt he could not say it in front of anybody else because of the vow, the vow. So I'm going to say it again. That's his main point, is that he really wants to sell this concept of a vow, which, yes, to us, we're shaking our heads at that. That he didn't want to tell his father when he was a slave because it would have made his, his father so upset. And certainly, you know, when he was in prison, he didn't want to tell his father. So this, this is also fascinating, that... Yosef can't tell his father by these other places because it would have been so upsetting. Again, Yosef doesn't necessarily know what his father is thinking. He doesn't know this. Part of the, the issue of the, of the long separation is that neither side knows what the other side has experienced. And neither side knows what the other side has, uh, thinks about the other side. Yosef has no idea what's going through his father's mind. By the way, that was part of what Rabbi Obinun went, where in my mind he exaggerated greatly, but he said something brilliant. He said, maybe Yosef thought his father was in on it. But, but as I said, it, it is so out of character for Yosef in terms of everything else that he does. I, I don't find that very terribly convincing. But again, it's taking the question a little bit too seriously by saying, yeah, of course Yosef could have shot off an email and say, hey, yeah, Dad, here I am. Who said he could have done that? So I'm going to say it again. I don't believe the question is a question, which is why I don't believe the answers are answers, and I believe that that they always are utilized in order to uh, make a larger point. He then continues to say, the And later on, when he's successful, his father he thought his father would even believe him. So it's, it's just very interesting over here, the, the, this worldview that Tosfot ends up uh, creating. And source number five is another collection of Tosfot. So, so here, I, again, I, I need to go back. The school of Tosfot is made up of hundreds of individuals over hundreds of years, located, you know, spread out Germany. We'll start off France, Germany, arriving in England. There are Balea Tosfot really 
all over what we would today call Ashkenaz, not the literal Germany, but all over Ashkenaz, Italy, there are, there are Baleatos vote. And what's interesting about the school is that very, very, by the way, it's like brisk today. Very, very often, they, all, they deal with the same questions. And brisk today, they all read the Rambam the same, day, the same way. They got the same diuk that they make and the same difficult Rambam. Either it's because they each thought of it individually, or that's tradition, that this is you know, what you ask. Same thing with the Balayatosa. There's a certain methodology which leads to certain approaches. And I'm going to say this more so in the commentary to the, to the Gemara, that they will lead them to ask certain types of questions. But over here, when it comes to their reading of the Chumash and learning of the Chumash, learning of the Torah, we end up finding one after the other after the other, asking the same kinds of questions. So this is a different collection. It's called the Moshev Zakenim, right? which is also from the Baliatosvot. And it actually gave us a name. Sha'al Haribash. So who is the Ribash? There are lots of people called the Ribash, but this is the Ribash. So who is the Ribash? So don't feel bad if you didn't get it. I got it right away, but don't feel bad. The Ribash is Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor which is the next source, but first we'll look at him being cited. Sha'al haribash, tzadik Yosef, heich tzir taviv kokach, zman, v'utzrach Yaakov l'shloach bin Yamin. Why would Yosef, who's such a tzadik, have put his father through so much? By the way, don't you love this? Yosef is the one who's put his father through so much. Again, just keep on thinking about that. Why not blame the victim all the way, you know? What are you doing in the hospital, right? What are you doing? Like, like think a second, but it's great because this whole mindset has won, has won over the whole narrative. Yes, why is it? But, but it's true. Right over here, where we started today, why does Yosef say you are spies? Why does Yosef say bring Binyamin? Which means that's a fair question, and that's really what he's asking over here. Shol haribash, Rav Yosef b'chor shor, tzadik Yosef echtzir taviv kol kach zman v'hutzrach yakav l'shloch binyamin, v'tireitz, and he answered, that Yosef wants to make sure he sees that he wants to bring his father down. That if I don't do it this way, if I just say, hi, I'm Yosef, go bring my father, they're not going to bring my father. Why would they bring their father? Because they hate him. They don't want him to have the chance to have alone time with their father. They're terrified of that. So the only way that he thinks he can do this is by bringing Binyamin and then bringing his father afterwards to come looking for Binyamin. And Yosef is trying to do this, which, which is really interesting because what he's saying is that Yosef has a problem. And, and the problem is one that I really am not going to get to as much as I want to. And that is, now how do you, after everything that's happened, how do you make the family whole again? How do you now, you know, we, we were deconstructed, now how do you reconstruct? How do you bring them back together and what he's actually answering is that Yosef is thinking and trying. Now, how do we do that? Uh, if you look at source number six, it's actually the Bechor Shur speaking now. Kishimachru Hishbiu. He actually goes through this other thing that we found in Tosus. They all made this vow. That he wouldn't tell his father, reveal to his father, his father wouldn't know. And he wouldn't tell anybody that he was one of the sons of Yaakov. The Yosef at the moment agreed. He thought it was either death at the hands of his brothers or agreed to this. Because if that weren't the case, Shanim. 
שהיה מלך במצרים, שבע שני השבע ושתיים מן הרעב, למה לא שלח לאמור לאביו? Why did he never send a message to his father? הנני כאן במצרים. הלא היה יודע כאביו מצטער עליו, אלא ודאי נשבע להם. So it's interesting, the Bechor Shor, who we just so quoted, now you see what the Bechor Shor writes, he goes to what we had seen earlier in Tosfot, which I'm going to say it again, is the school of Tosfot had this approach, and, and I'm going to pause here, but you can look in source number seven, you can look in source number eight, the Riva was one of the Balei Tosfot, the Rush is one of the Balei Tosfot, and they all raise the same question and all give similar answers. In source number nine, one of the latest Balei Tosfot, the Rosh Mishat Misans, Right? It's not, not a place in Netanya. The Rosh Mishans. In English, it's S-E-N-S. Sens, I guess that's how pronounce it in France. V'tiritz Rabbeinu Shimshon. Not not sons, I said that. V'tiritz Rabbeinu Shimshon. She'im haya sholeich la'aviv kol advarim, miyad kol echav, hayo borchim zemikan v'zelikan. But if he, told all of, if he told his father, all of his brothers would have ran away. Which means... How do you tell your father how you got to Egypt? How do you skip that part of the story? His brothers would have been humiliated. That Yosef went through this whole process in order to slowly and deliberately bring the family back together. Again, you can say, but why was he so harsh? And why does he make this whole ruse? And why bring Binyamin? And, but, but you see it again. He's coming from the same school of thought. So it's interesting that by the time the Ramban gets to this, this is a well-accepted idea. It's not that the Ramban made this up. The Ramban just utilized it to prove his point. And his point is that Yosef believes that it is prophecy, not just dreams. Now, there are those who take the Ramban to task for this. Um, I don't know which order to do this. One is the Yabar Benel, and the other is the Akedat Yitzchak. As uh, is well known, they actually are very, very close to one another, and there is borrowing that takes place. Um, what's interesting about the... What they both say, and, and with the Yabar Benel, there's a little bit more twists and turns, but what they both say is, if this is a prophecy, prophecy is God's problem. You don't have to make... Your, your, your obligation is to honor your father. You don't make prophecies come true. You don't cause these things to happen. And rather, the narrative which they have... I'm, I'm, I'm skipping to the bottom line. Certainly, the Kedat Yitzchak, which is in source number 11, is that he wants to bring the family back together, but part of it is the spiritual healing for what they have done to him. And, what, and I'm going back to now all the details of this week's parasha, he does put them through the same kinds of experiences that he had had. And therefore, what he wants is the recognition that we've done something wrong, but not out of, out of an act of vengeance, but rather out of an act of caring. And that, that, that is actually quite interesting. And as I'm going to say it again, you'll, you'll find that in both of the sources, although the Abarbanel has a little bit more twists and turns along the way. And part of what he considers is sort of what we've already seen a little bit, and that is how does a leader share the information? Because as lead, meaning it may be easy for Yosef to go tell his father, you know, I'm okay and I'm here and whatever, but how does Tzafnat Paneach go about doing this? And, and how does he do this without putting Egypt 
in a precarious situation, which means it's fascinating that Barbanel, who some of you realize or don't realize right now, actually ha- was in a position of power. So it, to me, it's, it's fascinating. I'm, this is your homework to read through this Barbanel and to see how he's worried about how somebody who's a leader actually can go and fix their own personal issues right now without having afterwards a problem in terms of the larger community or the larger international issues that take place. I'm saying the Barbanel is really quite interesting because he, he deals with, with both of these, the Yosef problem and the Tzafnat Paneach problem. But uh, again, the Barbanel and the Akedah both do not like the Ramban, and they don't, both don't see prophecy working in this particular way. I, I, I want to read something from Rav Hirsch, and then we're going to come back to Hanukkah. Rav Hirsch in source number 12 writes, Kolo Shodavar, here's the bottom line. And this is, realize this is the end of a longer piece. Bishasha yitvada aleim ki Yosef, when he reveals himself as Yosef, chayvot eneim lehipakeach, their eyes needed them to open. Vishnei hatstadim ya'aviu libam et kol zichronot avar. And both sides are going to need to forget everything that happened in the past. Rak kach only by forgetting the past can they possibly try to create a family again and him for, to become a son for his father and to become a brother to his brothers. And therefore he says, and if I'm not mistaken, if it goes, if I'm not mistaken, that's what prevented Yosef from reaching out to his father during the time of his success, which means during the seven good years. Ma betza liyakov, which is such an interesting turn of phrase, even though it's translated by the German. Ma betza liyakov l'schut beben echad u'l'shkol tachtav asara. What value would there be for Yaakov to get his son Yosef back, but in the process to lose ten? U'l'rot metichut ve'eva shriot bein banav. And then to see all of the hatred, the tension and the hatred which existed among his children. And that's why Yosef did all the things that he did. And as far as we're concerned, Reverse writes, that this is worthy of the brilliance of Yosef to create a plan, the plan of you know, repatriation. You know, how are we going to bring this family back together again? And Yosef realizes you can't do it with a letter. You can't do it by sending an email. You can't do it by just sending a picture you know, in front of the pyramids. You, you, you can't do any of these things. You have to find the way to slowly bring them back together. And maybe, maybe part of what Yosef is thinking, when they realize that I could have killed them, I could have thrown them in prison for life. If I wanted to take revenge, I had all the options open in front of me because they were accused of high crimes in, in Egypt and I let go of them and I am allowing the family to be whole again. They have to now do the same. I've let go, now they have to let go. Which means what Rav Hirsch over here is saying, and, and, and the truth is, it, it, it's his words, it's his formulation, which is wonderful. How do you become a family again? So now I want to go back to the story of Hanukkah. Because the story of Hanukkah is, uh, is a story that has this element in it of brothers fighting against brothers. And worse, brothers killing brothers. So now how do we, how do we make a holiday out of a civil war? That, that actually becomes the, the problem. Now I'm going to, to a certain extent, oversimplify some of this. But 
Hanukkah, the miracle of Hanukkah, the miracle of the lights, is an unnecessary miracle. When I say it's unnecessary, it's not like, now think of other miracles that take place. It's not like Avraham being saved from the furnace. It's not like the splitting of the sea. It's not like the plagues. It's not, and it's not like the walls of Yerichel coming out. Miracles that God does so often take place because there is something at stake. And over here, a miracle takes place almost for no reason whatsoever. Why does this miracle take place? It's an unnecessary miracle. If, if I'll say this a little bit stronger, and I can say it a lot stronger, one way that I can say it's stronger is, so if they waited a week, the Rambam says it would have taken a week to produce more oil. What tragedy would there have been if they waited a week and then they started up the Beit HaMikdash all over again and now we have new oil? So you wait a week. We've all, right, they'll be in Bidud for a week and then they'll come out and then, what, what is the problem if they wait a week? More than that, halachically, it's quite possible, according to a number of the Tanayim, that the whole miracle was unnecessary because according to at least one approach, oil is not Makabal Tuma. In the, in the Mikdash, oil is not Makabal Tuma. And therefore, there's no, therefore, it was unnecessary in a whole lot. They could have used any oil that they wanted over there. wouldn't have made a difference whatsoever. So it's, it's interesting, even though that's a later opinion, but it's interesting that, I'm just saying that halakhically, somebody could have said, hold it, who said that the oil is Tameh? But no, they had to go and it was very important for them to fight for re-establishing the holiness and to re-establish the, the Beit HaMikdash. And they didn't want to wait, wait a week. They, want, they, wanted, to, they wanted to do it now. Uh, I, I also, also, there's the famous question about, you know, uh, was there a miracle? Was there, how many days was the miracle? Exactly the part of the problem is, what did they do with the oil? Did they light all of it the first day or did they light one-eighth the first day? Could be they light one-eighth. If you read the Gemara carefully... Yes, yes. But if you read the Gemara carefully, it actually, it actually sounds that way. It, it actually sounds that way. From, you read the Gemara carefully, it actually sounds that way. That they lit from this for eight days. It, it sounds like they lit for eight days from what was there. Not that it lasted for eight days, but they lit from this for, for eight days. But the, the, the issue is that to appreciate what happened in Hanukkah, you need to know one more thing. And that is that when the Mishkan was completed, the Torah tells us a fire comes down from heaven and uh, it swallows up the offering. When the first Beit HaMikdash is completed, it says in Divrei Yamin that Shlomo Melech made the dedication, a fire comes down from heaven. We're told, however, that when the people came to build the second Beit HaMikdash, we're told very few people came. It was a very small turnout. It wasn't like, uh, like it could have been. And we're told at that point that the, the, all the young people celebrated, all the old people started to cry. So what's going on? So one of the things to suspect is, and this is always the harder thing to identify, it's what didn't happen. It doesn't describe any fire coming out of heaven. As if God is saying, listen, you guys didn't bother coming back, why should I come back? But it's only after the Jews went to war to protect what's holy, to protect the Beit HaMikdash, and they fought for it, even to the extent of, of, of again, that, that's, those are the first stories of Matityahu killing somebody who's trying to, uh, to desecrate the Mizbeach. And as I said, that's the tragedy of, the, of, of that civil war. And it's at that point that a miracle takes place with lights. And I believe that the people who witnessed this said, this is the Chanukah Tamizbeach of the second Beit HaMikdash, which of course is the reason why they called it Chanukah and they didn't call it someplace else. It's not Chanukah, hey, it's Chanukah because this is the dedication. 
Now God showed that he cared. But, but I, I want to restate this right now and explain the implication of it. The miracle of Hanukkah is different from every other miracle because the miracle of Hanukkah takes place because God is saying something to us. God is saying, I care. Actually, it's much stronger than that. God is sending us a letter, and God is saying, I love you. It is an act of love for the Am Yisrael, for the Jewish people, and saying, I care. And that's why the fire comes down. Because there's nothing else, there's no other communication here, there's no other purpose of this. It's God is saying that I care. But, now look what Chazal then do. What would have made sense is that you celebrate it every year. But they said, no, we, we need to celebrate it in each and every house. Now that's something which I'm sure someone could have countered and said, that's sacrilegious. You light in the Beis HaMikdash. You light in the Beit HaMikdash. You don't light in your house. But no, every single house has to be seen as being a place of Kedusha, a place of holiness. But more than that, what's the basic mitzvah of Hanukkah? Ner ish uveto. Each household, one candle for the entire household. Which means two brothers living in one house, they both fulfill the mitzvah together. Which means the message over here is that holiness, which is the, this is to count to the Hellenists, holiness is not only in the Beit HaMikdash, holiness is in every single Jewish home. But the second point is, an entire family can fulfill the mitzvah with one candle. And that seems to me to be an expression of unity. Which means God comes and performs the miracle at an act of love, and then we respond by making this mitzvah, a rabbinic mitzvah, to light in the house. And it also may explain something else. It is such a bizarre thing that on Hanukkah there's a basic mitzvah, there's mahadrin, there's mahadrin and mahadrin. Where does all that come from? And by the way, on top of all that, we all do mahadrin and mahadrin. That's what we do. One candle would have, is enough. But if God went out of his way to show an act of love in order to show that God cares, our response is, we're going to show you how much we care, and we're not going to get the minimal gift, we're not going to get the minimal thing, we're not going to just check off that we did this mitzvah, we're going to also go beyond, because Hanukkah ends up becoming this act of love. Now, why do I stress the, stress the issue of love? How do you fight hatred? You fight hatred with love. How do you fight a civil war? You need to bring more love in your lives. You need to bring more love in your hearts. God is essentially starting off this whole thing by saying, I will perform an unnecessary miracle over here to fill everyone's heart up with love in order now to break that cycle, in order to break the cycle of, of jealousy and of hatred and, 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 and bloodshed and let us spread light, let us spread love, let us spread caring and that, and, let's, and let's, let us do prosumenisa, let us try as much as possible to publicize this because essentially what God is saying is what's needed to fight hatred is love.